Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Greg Blazevich, CEO of SalesManago. The early growth was really about having a complete freedom to experiment and to have a team and to have a team of people. And I think that a team that is actually really open for change, for experimentation, for failures, right? It's not an obvious thing, right? And when you see a startup, you know, you would have, you know, two, three, I don't know, five max founders. They work like crazy. I think that till today, we are almost 400 people in the business, yep. right? I think that we have, you know, 30% people that work like founders. This is Greg. He's got over 20 years of experience in digital marketing. His career started in marketing agencies in New York and London. For six years, he held the position of marketing director at Comarch, one of the largest European IT service providers. In 2006, he was nominated the CEO of Interia, one of the largest horizontal internet portals in Europe listed on the Warsaw Stock Exchange, employing over 250 people. Greg is the author of a widely popular book, Marketing Automation Revolution. He's also a lecturer at universities, helping other technology startups. In 2008, he started as an entrepreneur, creating software for marketing teams, which led to the founding of SalesManago Marketing Automation in 2011. Their mission? To enable every e-commerce team on the world to be lean, yet pragmatic and powerful, and become the CEO's trusted revenue partner. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Greg to my podcast. We explore how Greg took his business to 22 million ARR in a completely bootstrapped way. He shares his big lessons learned to build a business that has staying power, how to find your own way of doing it, and why you shouldn't blindly follow the advice and rules of people outside of your company. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why the essence of your SaaS product is not its features, but the transformation it will let your users make. Secondly, how going into countries that no one considers can build you an interesting competitive position. Thirdly, how to create an organization where more than 30% of your employees showcase the determination of a founder. And fourthly, how to arrive at a position where you can start funding from a position of strength, not desperation. Well, hi, Greg. Thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Hello, John. Nice to meet you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And yeah, I mean, we've been working together for a while now. And it was about time that we spent some time kind of talking about the sales Monaco business in more detail about the journey and the big problem that you're solving. But before we dig into the company that you founded, 
a while ago now, almost, uh, I think, 11 or 12 years. A little bit about you. What drives you? What gives you energy? I don't know. I think I'm just a fortunate human being, you know. I was given, you know, some kind of genetical structure, chemicals in my brain working properly, and then, you know, that, that keeps me going. And I just kind of try to be cautious about that, that it's a great gift, and you have to really take care of this. So I think that what drives me is, you know, this all these chemicals in my brain, but then and a really huge amount of motivation that I have internally. But I think that I was kind of really fortunate to have a family that was kind of promoting this kind of energy, right? Being open and kind of entrepreneurship. My father was quite entrepreneurial. And I think that that shaped me a lot. And I think a lot of impact already was also was made by the fact that I, I played professional sports. I was a handball player. And I played probably like 15 years, reaching the level of like Polish junior national handball team, which was great success, kind of my dream. But then I, I went then I went to the Polish national team kind of meetings. I really discovered that probably I went, I reached that level due to really character and really motivation, less <laughs> probably talent. Okay. And I said... Okay, maybe I can try to use that energy, that motivation in other places and just leave handball for more talented people. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> okay. So you started no, you started the business, what is it, 2012, 11? Yeah, I think that I started my entrepreneurial journey in 2010. And really, and it took me really two years to come to the idea of Seismanago. So those two okay. years. Those two early years okay. were a lot about like experimentation, you know, looking, you know, learning a lot about, you know, what SaaS business is. And again, I was, you know, during this two-year period, I had a couple of trials of different MarTech solutions, which were not successful. Fortunately, were not successful, but I learned a lot. So when we came with Conrad, my co-founder, this stage with the idea of Seismanago, we already knew a lot and that could, I know how the pricing works, how all the sales motion might, might work. And I think that we were by this able to actually bootstrap business without, you know, too much help from yeah. around. So that was like my corporate experience. I was just being ready to take a lot of challenge, managing and managing things. Then, then like two years really of experimenting in the SaaS business in like as an entrepreneur, like getting ready for that. And then when we had Seismanago, I think we knew we cannot fail basically. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, I mean, just to kind of for everybody on the call, what is Salesmanago all about? What is the big problem that you saw that required but they were screaming for a solution. So what is that all about? What is the mission you're on? All right. So it's very much entrenched in my personal story of, of, and my career as a marketer. So after, after studies, I graduated from, I have two MAs. One is in English literature. The second is in business management. And after that, I went into marketing. And very quickly, I realized that it's actually kind of tough game in marketing world, which made me actually, you know, wish to change the job after like three years of being in marketing. But then I was, I was like, I was forced, a little bit forced by my CEO at one of the largest Polish IT companies where I work to actually stay and try to do marketing in a bit different way. And what, what was wrong is, you know, the problem that I saw as a marketer, and it was really 
probably almost 20 years ago was that, you know, it was just a kind of cost department, brochures, trade shows, no much appreciation. That was a bit of pre-internet era. And so everything that company was really dependent on in terms of growth was just the sales, you know, sales guys on marketing was like, you know, bring me something or the other thing and just help me, you know, in the best scenario, basically. Right. So, yeah. And when I st- actually decided to stay, we tried to solve internally at that, at that company problem of, of, you know, how to make actually a marketing, a strong player within the whole organization. And we had a couple of projects internally at this stage. And that was and kind of really 15, 17 years ago that we made this kind of first really project of actually getting marketing into the business and really into revenue generation, like being accountable for something and really also being marketing. Our objective was to prove that marketing actually was playing an important part in the funnel, in the conversion and in actually driving sales. And that project turned out to be extremely successful. This company actually till today is, you know, at this stage was one of the most innovative and really innovative company in, yep. you know, the software business in Poland, Central Europe and Europe. And it's still such a business today. But we really started this kind of transformation. When I ended my journey at this business, today it's like 5,000 people company, really like billions yep. of revenue. I decided I really want to go on my own. And I knew that really the main kind of thesis for me as an entrepreneur would be actually really to help other marketers, you know, go through that transformation story, you know, from being kind of cost center to a revenue center from like assistant to the CEO to a partner of CEO, right? Yeah, exactly. And I knew that, you know, that what is required to achieve that is actually is to equip a marketing team with a serious software because what I was seeing at this stage was that all the other departments in the companies would have their own very serious software. So finance team would have ERP software, say CRM software, logistics, you know, project management, like everything, all the departments would have their own kind of serious investments in IT and marketing was, well, where are we? We could at least, we know that in the best case scenario, we could use some kind of free tools, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. And today it's like everybody, and you know, there's this trust. I was actually also quite lucky to just notice that kind of trend because today, as when you look at Gartner or IDC or Forrester, you know, it looks like marketing team is managing probably the highest IT budget in the organization. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. That has changed a lot. Obviously, that was hugely also driven in this, you know, in the meantime, by huge growth of the internet and actually this, this new really sales channel appearing, which was really owned, started to be owned by marketing rather than by traditional sales team. So I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was doing like a mixture of, you know, everything, you know, why we are here, you know, like a bit of experience, a bit of context, like really capability of noticing that opportunities. And that, as you said, it, you were asking in the beginning, a bit of drive, like internal drive actually to make things happen. And yeah, it's a huge task. I mean, I follow the MarTech scene and funny enough, of course, now it's called MarTech. Like there's, there's also the sales tech. I've seen slides with, 8,000, 10,000 vendors out there. So you could possibly also say like at the moment, marketing has too many tools (laughs) or they're focused on the wrong things. I really like the story and the backstory of this, that marketing needs to become 
for marketing to succeed, it needs to become yeah the best part and the right hand of the CEO, because then marketing truly does its job. It's not about creating leads. At the end, it needs to be creating leads that convert, because at the end, it's about customers, and that's it needs to bring the revenue in there. Yeah. So that's a very strong thing there. Now you started sales month ago with that vision. You created the tool that those marketers required in order to become the right hand of the CEO, the revenue partner of the CEO, the trusted revenue partner. Where have you put your focus? Because, I mean, you could focus on the whole world here. Where do you find this can play the biggest possible role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think because we were bootstrapping business, we were fully owning basically the strategy, finance, the allocation of resources, so we could experiment a lot. And that was like the first say, thing, right? We started really kind of modest way. And that was kind of the initial idea. Okay, let's try in Poland first, right? Yeah. yeah. 40 million country, millions of businesses, strong e-commerce. I mean, it's just a great place to start business. And my initial idea was not really too big. I would never think of kind of, you know, going to Silicon Valley, starting the States, go kind of pursue this blue ocean I mean, we just wanted to have a profitable company with a couple of, you know, yeah. heavy customers. And it, of course, would not ever mean we would not have ambition or motivation. We were highly motivated to deliver stuff. Yeah. But I think we just didn't want to put on us as a team too much stress of kind of and setting the expectations too high. We wanted to really do that the idea grows on us. And then so what happened is that we really acquired a couple of customers in Poland. We obviously built the software in like the kind of in English language that was just available anywhere and really just by being linkedin and just sharing kind of couple of really stuff we were kind of you know start with our kind of network you know started to expand and it started to expand it started to expand in a very opportunistic way which means then again we would not like think okay apart from poland obviously that we would go to any other country i mean those, those countries were developing quite organically kind of opportunistically so we had we met a couple of people in that reached out from us from spain to us from spain from italy and we were probably we would never invent this kind of thing right because our and if you looked at actual files the actual file or the analytics or the research market research you should they they, that would tell you that you should go to uk or dac or Uh exactly which probably would kill us i don't think that we would be successful anyway right i mean this is what we are trying to do today to go to this high value kind of more ambitious markets but italy and spain that turned out kind of natural as a natural thing and a lot of central europe and that's where we started to build business poland predominantly direct motion and those external international countries because we're bootstrapping we're not completely not capable of hiring any kind of sales guys outside of poland yeah. We would bet on partner networks. So we that, that's still, when you look at our revenues, today it's like 22 million AR, 20 million ARR. It's today, till today, 50% of our revenue. So we have pretty effective partner network, right? And it's mostly about Europe, which again, it, because it was built in like an opportunistic way outside of, you know, something that you would read, you know, how you build and take, you know, decision about going to a new market. Uh-huh. It has built for us a quite interesting competitive position because all the really big guys in the industry like Adobe or Salesforce, they would focus predominantly on those high value markets, right? Yeah. 
Exactly. No, we have our own space there, which is kind of our space. It has its value, basically, right? And has that focus? Where did you kind of the type of tools that you've been creating and the success that you've been seeing in the market? Has it been primarily in B two B, B two C? Yeah, good question. So beginning, we didn't know, right? Um, we <laughs> we thought we actually because I was coming from B two B kind of space. I thought that we would be our the software would be also about B two B. But because of the fact that, you know, when we entered the market, when we launched the project and the product, that was actually about the time where internet sales started really to boom in Poland, Central Europe, right? So it turned out that the main customers, the main interest would come from actually B2C companies and especially e-commerce businesses, which, again contributed a lot to like naturally contributed a lot to, to how we really structured the product, how we what sort of features we were developing. So what we did at the beginning is we had this MVP, we had this MVP, we had a couple of customers, like 80% of them would be quite important, kind of quite important, quite big Polish e-commerce businesses. And trust me, Polish e-commerce, you know, when you look at the really worldwide scene, is quite advanced, right? Yeah. Because we would not have here something else before, right? Uh-huh. So e-commerce is really, really flourishing. And it's actually yesterday I saw some quite interesting study saying that there's like about a like thousand of MarTech businesses in Europe, SaaS businesses in Europe, and 20% of them is coming out of Poland. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that this is because we also have a quite strong e-commerce. It's a big country with a strong e-commerce scene. So you have a lot of actually demand from the like yeah. from demand from the market. So our customers turned out to be e-commerce businesses and they shaped Seisnago, right? They really shaped yeah. Seisnago because we would always listen to them. We had crazy ambitious IT team delivering basically everything they wanted. So we kind of in the meantime, sort of naturally, we came without even knowing, right? We came to this idea of having a customer data platform with like end-to-end really customer data platform with natively built omnichannel execution, which is like, you know, like three years ago, three, four years ago, we became aware that it's a huge value actually, right? And it's a competitive <laughs> advantage, right? So yeah. we were always just, you know, I think that in terms of, you know, how we build the product, we would probably first build the product and then learn actually what we have, right? <laughs> That's what it sort of sounds like. And it's, yeah, I mean, I can understand what you've done. You started to work very closely with customers and grow from their biggest needs, build that and because the e-commerce scene was so mature in Poland, you've been building up something that actually has provided real value and really works. Yeah. And that's, I can also understand the way I look at it. I'm coming from the Netherlands and I, we have, and the company I used to work for has always been focusing on the UK and on Germany and on, on the Nordics, like you say. Because the markets in Spain and Italy and again, the Mediterranean countries and then the eastern part of Europe, the prices were just too high. And I think that's also when I look at Sales Monaco, what you provide here, and I'm looking at the value proposition that's out there on the website, you maximize e-commerce revenue the lean way. That really plays, it really, yeah, plays to what these countries really want. You know, it's, yeah. I think that there's been an attraction, whether the, the positioning was there, yes or no, the value proposition was there or no, but that's what they saw. Mm-hmm. 
So winding back the clock, what is if you look at how this all develops and the platform that you've been building, what has been a really important important strategic choice or fact right now that actually that leads to your success? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the early kind of growth was really about having a complete freedom to experiment and to have a team and to have a team of people. And I, again, the thing I'm just lucky to identify those people and those people that I identified as partners were identified to similar people too, right? That build like this very, very exciting team. And I think that a team that is actually really open for change, for experimentation, for failures, right? It's not an obvious thing, right? And when I look at the challenges that we have today, after we are a big company after a huge round, big private equities, it's, yeah. you know, maintaining this kind of cultural aspect is a big challenge. I would say the culture, very specific people we were capable of identifying that were really, I think, committing their lives, right? To say Smanago, right? So I think that we sort of normally, you would have, I mean, a couple of, when you see a startup, you know, you would have, you know, two, three, I don't know, five max founders. They work like crazy. I think that till today, we are almost 400 people in the business, yep. right? And I think that we have, you know, 30% people that work like founders. So they really commit their personal yep. kind of life to success of, of Seismanago, right? Let me make a small interruption here. Greg just made an excellent remark about what sets his business apart from the competition in a way that's very hard to copy. He's created a culture that's about giving people a chance, enabling them to make a difference and giving them ownership. The effect of that translates into every aspect of the business. And most importantly, it's one of the things customers openly talk about as something they would miss most if it were gone. It's a trade remarkable software company's master. They start off on a bold mission, aim to be different, not just better, and based on that, attract those people that believe what they believe and then guide them to make things happen, being curious, experimenting, failing and learning fast. With that, they're able to create products that are valuable and desirable and create strong momentum. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic copy available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. But what do you believe drives that? What is, what is that secret that you get that commitment? How do you say that? I mean, there's a word for that. Discretionary effort. People kind of go beyond what is expected. I think that the key to that was that we were, our hiring strategy was always really just give people a chance, right? Even my COO, right? You have many people here that are today that are really homegrown, kind of extreme, like homegrown stars, really, that nobody would probably, we were just the only guys, right, that would give them this kind of chance. And they would also notice this chance, that kind of change. And that's why that drives, I think, a lot of commitment. So we would open our doors to completely inexperienced people. We just see, you know, that they have some kind of character. There is something in their minds, right? Some kind of something, you know, in their minds, in their eyes, right? That you feel is going to work, right? And then you just... You know, it's very kind of gut feeling. It's very instinct kind of based decisions. But I don't know what's driving those people because there must be something that is they have something internally, right? 
there's yeah. something there's i mean in your kind of story in your in my life in other people's stories, there are many things that actually make people really go forward and change the world. But I think that this is what is bringing this commitment. We were always open. We were giving a chance and then just helping those people grow, right? And they are, and I think that they just appreciate it. And I think that it was, and I think that also we are all very transparent, right? And we would appreciate that individual effort. And a lot of those people are today you know, really owning, you know, a significant part of business as basically owner, you know, like they do possess some shares in the business, right? So that now they like actually feel like also co yeah, co-owner. I think the that business. is yeah, what drives the essence of that, that ownership and that people are, yeah, they're given the authority to do that rather than being managed and say, okay, you have to do this, you have to do that. But it's, it's, I would say it's not like really like this, right? I think that... With these young, inexperienced people, you actually have to really kind of do a bit of command and command sort of management. And because everybody's completely inexperienced, they just they need True. some yeah. guidance. They need guidance, right? But at some level, you just let it go. But right? that's the word, I mean, guidance. Yeah, there's a guidance, there's like a beginning, guidance, command, and then they just slowly you know, become completely independent. There's so much trust, you know, that they know what they're doing. Just, just let it go. Exactly. Yeah. They, they fail a couple of times, but then they learn the, learn the fastest. Yeah. 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 What has been the hardest not to crack on this journey for you? If you look at the, I guess it's 12, 13 years right now. Mm -hmm. What was, what's been, well, there are, you know, being an entrepreneur is like, is a hard thing, right? So I think that it's hard really to boil this down to like one thing. I think it's uh -huh. just... It's a constant, you know, huge pressure, huge responsibility. And I think that what's really important is the ability to manage yourself. You know, you have to come every day in a good shape, right? Yeah. Have some clarity of mind and, you know, and life are, and some situations are, some moments can be really challenging, right? And it's, it's those challenges might be coming from different areas or finance or product or people very often, right? We try to limit that. You know, we try to limit that space where the problems appear by basically, you know, trying to avoid toxic people, trying to, to avoid, trying to avoid politics, right? And some, you know, we just need kind of, you know, transparent, you know, pragmatic people that take ownership. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and it it's, says a lot already. It says a lot already. Well, talking about like a couple of those moments again, because you've you started right after the financial crisis almost. And then, of course, quite recently, a couple of years ago, the pandemic came in. Was that, a, how do you say that, the best thing that could happen to your business or was it really, really challenging? Because <laughs> I can also, the reason why I'm saying the best thing that could happen, I think everybody then started to kind of move online. And it also sparked, yeah, a lot of the e-commerce effort. Mm -hmm. I don't think that changed like really, you know, the, our trajectory of growth, right? I think that... It just made us a, more, a lot more kind of aware, self-aware. So this, this lockdown kind of period, right? And then subsequently, uh, Ukraine war. Yeah, exactly. That just made people, I think, more kind of reflective, more and more reflective. And I think that it actually really changed the kind of paradigm that we work and you know how we think of business so 
I think it became kind of less sort of power that machine with, you know, money, size guys and, you know, and to more kind of considerate approach by which would mean understanding, you know, what is really the purpose we are here, right? What's the purpose? I am here and doing this. I mean, that was just the time or what was our purpose as an organization? You know, you just need, I think people started to expect a lot more on that in, you know, in this, during these times that that really, I think, transformed the employees, the management, basically people look at themselves. So I think it's also affects a lot the organizations by looking at the purpose, the values that they bring, you know, who the customers are, why they are loyal, right? How we we are connected with those customers in terms of values. Can we sort of be more kind of, you know, can we have some kind of social activism with our initiatives, with our customers? I think that is changing. I think that I would say this would be a completely new growth paradigm for a lot of businesses. And I think that the business is today in the process of actually looking at this and looking at this growth potential just basically from this perspective, because I think that that would create more loyal customers, actually more growth and just like healthier, basically approach to business instead of like just, okay, let's take, you know, 50 million bucks, you know, and deploy, you know, and increase our size force by, you know, by two. That kind of approach right now is resulting in a huge cuts in the tech industry, right? Yeah, but that's so, an interesting thing in itself, you know, and I like what you're saying here. There's two questions. First of all, you started your business being completely bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. And then last year, you decided to get external funding in, mm-hmm. where a lot of companies start with being funded and getting into that treadmill and being, yeah, that is very of big promises, but also big expectations that are hard to meet. Why have you chosen this particular route? And what was exactly the reason why, why it was the right moment for private equity come in last year to like this, yeah, scale the trajectory? Yeah. So my, again, just a coincidence. We, in Poland, where we set up business, you don't have such a really, such a grown up VC or private equity scene, right? So the, the yeah. amount of money that is available in the market for small businesses or startups is basically very limited. Okay, yeah. so that was probably just an environment, but it doesn't mean we would, we would not have any kind of proposal in that case. We would just feel a lot, you know, very confident we could take this company on our own without any external help, right? And You've we, proven that, yeah. And we were, despite of the fact that we would have some proposals and which were, some of them were quite attractive, Yeah, we would really postpone that reward, right? To early, to really later, later stage. And it doesn't mean we, we didn't have investors because we did, we did have two investors, but that was this, those investors were purely really about kind of our de-risking, me and, and my co-founder. So we wanted to also to earn a bit of money to kind of yeah. de-risk. As the time was passing by, really, we were earning as founders, as leaders, like almost zero money. So that for us, just, you know, selling like small piece of business in the, you know, while we're going forward was just a way of actually really verifying our kind of yeah. private lives, personal lives, our families and so on. Right? So, so that was the kind of story. But we, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, three, four years ago, we came really with the, you know, to an understanding that product itself is extremely innovative, that our international sales is growing very nicely. And we 
actually uh, the, the whole company is growing nicely. There is definitely a nice market for this. Yeah. And we started to think, you know, what are we going to do next? And, you know, and we obviously knew that there are this kind of taking this growth to a more global scale, taking this business to a more global scale would require actually having, a, you know, some serious partners, right? That, you know, that's, I mean, I understand, I try to understand my limitations and have a lot of limitations. I'm trying to, try to be aware of them. But that limitation about, I think, you know, understanding market and, I mean, finance to financials and also just, you know, having a, you know, building that team to a larger group of really fantastic, exciting people was, was something that we, want, we wanted to do, right? Just to be, you know, to be more motivated, to have better kind of really yeah. better exchange of ideas. We decided to go on that journey of actually finding new partners. So we found two private equities, Silver Tree and Poeing from UK, yeah. extremely nice guys, very entrepreneurial. It, they were selected in like a really a, a process that took us like 12 months. And we, they, I think, understand quite well our approach, what we want to do. And we partner together to take this business to, you know, from like 20 million to 100 million in the next five years, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I like that approach. First of all, that you kept postponing getting external funding in just to make the business better. Yeah. Build a business for the long run. It started, I mean, it helps you. What I wrote about it a lot already, it makes funding an option, not a set choice. And you start from a position of strength. And I also like the way you explained it here. That at the end, you arrived at two strong partners out of a long selection process that was led by you, not the other way around. <laughs> so it's that strong. And it's about you know the things that are really running well, that you know exactly, okay, if I get this money and I pour it there, it will blow up in a way that is really beneficial to the whole company and everybody that works with it and for it. Yeah, yeah. Understand it. So from the learnings that you just discussed around the pandemic and then after the pandemic, immediately that big thing around the Ukraine war, how has that made your company stronger? I mean, what is the big lesson that you took from it that is a lesson for life almost? Well, I think that in Poland, everybody became really insecure about what is happening just, you know, just around the corner. And we do have a lot of Ukrainian people on board, yeah. right? And, you know, first thing we did was actually to have those people try to understand their position, their completely different mindset. We run a couple of initiatives to help them kind of internally. And also we as a company, we would support a couple of we, we as a company supported by our sponsors. We would also support a couple of initiatives. I don't think it, it was just kind of completely game changer. I mean, that built just a very specific atmosphere and better sense of, of being a great team and of supporting of, you know, very supportive people. And I think that from the perspective, well, it's not something particularly new for me, but I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people, you know, I think that they, you know, that just really hugely increased the sense of uh, really gratitude and actually appreciation of, you know, simple things in life, right? So same, yeah, that would be my kind of... Makes you more, makes you uh, stress the whole thing of being humble, doing the right thing, being customer focused, building for loyalty. Because I mean, I realized from the work that I've been doing with you that you've got an extremely loyal customer base. I remember a call that I had with one of your customers 
And one of the questions that I asked is, okay, if we would take sales money go away from you tomorrow and you couldn't use it anymore, what would you miss most? And he didn't even talk about the product. He actually talked about the people, you know, and actually mentioned the name of someone. That is, yeah, I mean, I've, I've never seen that in that strong it was not me. Hopefully it was not me. <laughs> no, there's someone from the customer success team, but it, it tells the whole story about how it's becoming a family. And you're doing that at a scale at the moment where you already, of course, you do. You said you, you mentioned 20 million ARR, got three, 4,000 customers. Yeah, the majority of those customers are actually having that same story. That is a super strong signal of, a, yeah, of building a company whereby you just work with ambassadors, people that spread the word for you. I would say that our customer is very similar to who we are at the moment. And yeah. so we work with mid-sized kind of businesses and they have the same mindset as we have. Really exactly. Yeah. So I'm very often, and I know that because I'm very often put in a, you know, in a size process to speak with one or the other CEO of other e-commerce business. And we just say, you know, we just speak the same language. They are extremely ambitious. We are extremely ambitious. And there is this kind of connect. And they have yeah. the similar people as we have in kind of mindset. So yeah. that works. That is most, so strong. That works really, really well. Exactly. I mean, I'm always advocating that when, when we're talking about, you know, what is your ideal customer profile? And that goes far beyond demographics and, and firmographics about the size of the company, the number of people working for them, the revenue they do and so on. It's really right. about exactly right. having, yeah, being on the same wavelength, yeah, yeah, talking yeah. the same and, language. And the only pain is that no sales methodology, band or medic would not cover that. <laughs> No, exactly. <laughs> that's that's true. Talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. And once people see that, the deal is made. You know, they're going to work with you because that builds trust. Looking at the time here, two more things. You know, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, and that's talking about the 10 traits that define those software companies that we start talking about and keep talking about. What are you steering for in your company to ensure that your customers just keep talking about sales managers? Mm, yeah, so we, I think what's my goal is, there are, you know, my goal is really to stay at the forefront of e-commerce technology innovation, right? I think this was very strong at the beginning. And I think that marketer, marketing environment in marketing industry is very open for that kind of approach. So I think that marketers, they are quite innovative people. They expect a lot of, they're open for innovations and they are adopting very quickly. And, you know, you need to fuel that kind of natural mindset of, of marketers by also being exciting as a product. And, and for me, being exciting as a product is also, is really about being innovative and still the market is evolving extremely quickly. You have, you know, opportunities every day. And that's why you have, you know, 8,000 tools right now in the market. Yeah, exactly. Because everybody is just seeing like one or the other problem, challenge, opportunity, pain point. And they just create a software that, for that. And so innovation is really a big thing. Obviously, the downside of this is you have to be very careful about, you know, maintaining the current infrastructure because then you got, you know, making sure that, you know, everything, you, just, you know, that they actually the reliability kind of thing. And then, you know, it, it's at the highest possible level because, again, MarTech has become a critical, mission critical part of business. It's not like nice to have kind of, you know, gadget, right? It's a mission exactly. critical, you know, so it's, 
really hard. It's really hard. And I mean, it's very challenging to just like stay at the forefront of innovation, be exciting for a marketing world. But yeah. then, you know, you have to be exciting also on the stability and reliability of, you know, of actually what you are, what you are delivering. Deliver on both. Yeah. What's your, what's your secret there? I mean, because I mean, I see that as a, I work with a lot of companies and that is typically to get to a point where you create momentum is one thing, but then to stay there is the other thing. And what I see is that when companies get successful, often complacency kicks in and we get like, okay, we're doing the, we're doing the, be, we're the best, we're the leader, we're, we're doing the great thing. And then suddenly you're not because, you know, you start to focus on the wrong things. You start to start being greedy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my personal hobby is, is product. So, I mean, I want to be there. I just love it. And I love discussion. I love industry. I want, I, I'm participating, I actively participating in that and kind of creating a bit yeah. of pressure here. Right. But one thing, but also I think that, that you know, the, the true pressure is coming from our customers. So what we do is, is we are still trying to be, you know, as close as possible to customers. There are many ways, there are many ways to do it. Our primary method or ta tactics to do it is our customer advisory board you know that's kind of the solution is really a, you know out of our 2000 customers like we have today we have selected about 50 that are kind of our that fit into our ideal customer profile and we work very closely with them they are really creating a big demand Right, Good. in terms of yeah. and, and sharing like a lot of stuff and sharing a lot of ideas, a lot of information where we should improve to become well, like relevant for them because it's not just about really acquiring new business, it's about really being still innovative and relevant to the customer. Point. Yeah, exactly. You know, in SaaS business, retention is probably higher, is valued much higher than new business acquisition, right? Retention is absolutely key. This is something we would not understand in the first like five, seven years of the business. We would just be kind of let's grow as, as fast as we can, acquire new customers. And then we came into this like new phase of really understanding who the customer is, who they really are. And we started to take care about return, customer retention. And that's our really primary focus right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can see this. Last question, from your entrepreneurial journey, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you would like to share with other tech entrepreneurs that aspire to kind of follow a similar journey as Sales Monaco has done? <laughs> you know, it's a very, very complex, very complex. And that maybe, you know, you could write like, you know, some books about that probably. <laughs> and don'ts. Maybe. But I think that, you know, entrepreneurs should be really understanding you know themselves their motivations what you should do is understand you know why you want to do the business how you're going to cope with the challenges i think that just very i think that do's would be mostly about kind of personal perspective and being kind of self-aware you know about you know what is triggering you what are the reactions right i would say that this kind of my first advice would be just around this and just in terms of don't I would say don't follow really too many advice and rules that you just hear outside. I think that you have to find your own way of doing things, right? Which yeah, actually, which is fitting you, which is fitting your market, which is fitting your experience, right? And who you want to actually be as an entrepreneur, right? And I think that that's maybe those two things that the zoo 
this do and don't, I think it's really about, you know, about defining kind of, you know, who your role model, role model is. I don't think that any entrepreneur would find some kind of person they would like to just blindly follow or be kind of mirror. I don't simply believe that, you know, I don't know any entrepreneur that would like to be a second Elon Musk or a second Bill Gates. Or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I'm surrounded by yeah. people. Actually, they're still like, co- everybody's coping to find that, that role model or create that kind of, you know, that kind of image that you would be aspiring to, right? And it's some kind of fictitious image, right? That we yeah. can create and it's evolving and that we are kind of constantly aspiring to, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much. So to kind of close this up, where can people go to find out more about Sales Manago or to say hi to you? Well, I mean, I'm very open. Just go to LinkedIn or Twitter, Facebook, and just reach me out directly. I'm always absolutely open to answer any questions, support. If you have challenging times, entrepreneur, and you have nobody to speak to, just speak to me, right? <laughs> really. I mean, I'm having a lot of that kind of conversations, and I think that we as entrepreneurs should be really should be really supporting each other. That support I've been always receiving also from many people around, and I'm, I'm really... Absolutely. Yeah, that's always good, yeah, exactly. Well, that, that comes to your point around don't, you know, don't follow anybody's advice, but listen and take it in and yeah. come up with your own your own story on that, your own conclusions. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, of course, you, you cannot do it on your own. That's also what I see with my mastermind, you know, together you're stronger. Everybody has dealt with certain things in different ways and possibly the answer is in the mix of that. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Greg. This was really inspiring. Thank you for sharing the story, the wisdom of how to build a company to where you've taken it today. Impressive. I like the story around it. And yeah, I'll keep following you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And this ends my conversation with Greg. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Greg Blazevich, founder and CEO of Sales Manigo. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.